0: A couple of years ago, I, had, I spent some time studying the book of, of 1 John. I spent a number of months in the book. And as I was going through it, and even in the years that have followed my study of it, I'm convinced that more than ever, this is a message that the church needs to hear today. It's a message that, that we have neglected to our, uh, to our despising. In First John, he, he tells us really about... What are the marks of the true children of God? What what marks all those who are truly believers? And I'm convinced after reading this passage and and really the entire Bible that one of the biggest blind spots, I guess we could say, in the church today is an abysmal understanding of what it means to be born again, to be born of God, what theologians call the doctrine of regeneration. Regeneration. And we desperately need a reawakening as the church as to what true conversion in the biblical sense of the word actually means and what this new life, what it means to be born of God and how that produces change in everyone who receives this gift. And the reason I say that is because if you're anything like me, you've probably heard these scenarios played out. It kind of goes like this. You've got someone who is born and raised in the church As a young child, they go to Sunday school and they ask Jesus into their heart. They pray the sinner's prayer and they continue attending church as their parents call them to do that. And then, sometime later in life, often maybe around the college years, you see them fall away from the faith completely. They say, I no longer have need of Christ. I no longer have need of the Word of God. I can do life my own way. And maybe it's that they begin to live like the devil. Or maybe it's just that they are actually good moral people in the generic sense of the word, but their morality doesn't stem from a desire to obey the commandments of God, a love for God. And when when we're confronted by this kind of scenario, many Christians reason this way. Well, this this isn't God's ideal. We know that's not God's ideal. But we know that the Bible says that once saved, always saved, therefore... At least this person's gonna get to heaven when they die, regardless of whether they lived like the devil for their whole lives. And John, in the passage right before us today, comes to us and he says, No, no way. You don't give assurance of salvation to that kind of person, because they're actually proving themselves to be not a child of God, but as the scripture passage before us says, a child of the devil. And in this passage, we see that come out, and John specifically confronts us, as believers, with a reminder about the dynamic, all-encompassing nature of the new birth, of to what it means to be born again. He's alerting us to what it means to be a child of God. And he is absolutely clear that it means much more than just going to heaven when you die although it is not less than that, but it is more. So you'll notice with me in the text, look at verse 28, that two of the key words throughout this entire passage as I read it, two of the key words are children and born. Look at verse 28, he begins, and now little children. And then look at the next verse, verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness, has been born of him. And then look at the next two verses in chapter 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And then look a few verses later in verse 7. He says, Little children, let no one deceive you. And then again, In verse 9, he brings us back to that phrase, born of God. We see, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. And then finally, in verse 10, he rounds out this section with a concluding statement. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So, therefore, by this repetition, I I take this to mean that John really wants us to, to come to grips as to what it means to be a child of God, to pay close attention to what is distinctively true of everyone. And you notice that word throughout the passage everyone, everyone, everyone who has been loved by God and called as his children. And I think you can actually sum up his point by saying this, that the new birth is an all-encompassing reality. Everyone who is born of God will experience a glorious future transformation when Christ returns, as well as radical present transformation, all of which is grounded in the love of God through the atoning work of Christ. So then in the time that remains, I want us to look at Those three points. I think there's three points that can be born out of this passage before us. And first of all, we see what's called the family hope. Second of all, we're going to look at what's called the family traits. And then third, we're going to fix our eyes upon the family savior. So first of all, let's look at what John has to say about the family hope that all of us have as God's children And what he explicitly says is that every child of God is marked by hope for the future. Now, in order to understand why John needed to remind Christians of their hope, we need to kind of get some of the background of the the book itself, his reasons for writing the letter. John writes to reassure believers of the certainty of their salvation. In chapter five, he says, I have written these things so that you may know that you have eternal life. So he's not here hoping that you'll necessarily question your salvation unless there's reason for you to question it. But if you are truly a believer, he wants you to know. He wants you to know that you have eternal life. And there were some, apparently in this community, false teachers who were claiming things like, well, we have fellowship with God and we have no sin. You see that in chapter 1, verse 8 and 10. And it seems like they kind of had this elitist mentality. In other words, we're better off than you. We're kind of on a different spiritual plane than you. And this led some true believers to doubt their standing with God and thus whether or not they actually had eternal life. John wants them to know. And thus, John, in this section, he starts us off by saying that if you continue to abide in Christ, we're going to look a little bit more at what that means in a bit, But if you abide in in Christ, you see that in verse 28, then you have confidence and you're not going to shrink back on the day of Christ's return. Believer, if you're abiding in Christ, you don't have need to fear the day of judgment. You only have reason to hope and to long for the return of Christ because you've been approved by God for entrance into his kingdom through his son your advocate. But hear me clearly, there's a warning in this passage as well. If you are not abiding, if you're not clinging to Christ, then there is a warning of coming judgment. And there is only hope that you will escape condemnation and that you won't shrink back in fear if you are abiding in Christ. He's the only life source for all of us. But if you are, the future day of judgment is actually something that you're supposed to look forward to You're supposed to pray that Christ would return because it's the day when all wrongs will be made right. All injustices will be made right. So John, first of all, tells us about the the future coming day of judgment. And he says, if you're abiding, you have hope. There's no condemnation for you. But if you're not, oh, beware. You're going to shrink back in fear. But then John also He also reassures us as believers about this experiential and transformative component of glory that we look forward to. He hones in really on what every child of God should expect and set their sights on as they wait for Christ's return. Notice especially his use of the word no throughout this passage, but look at verse 2 in chapter 3 with me. 3 verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. The apostle reminds us that we know that as children of God, we will see Christ one day. And you're going to experience a glorious transformation. And yes, this is still in the future, and there's a lot of details about the future that are still kind of foggy to us. The Bible doesn't really give an HD picture of what we all can expect, but it does give us enough so that we have hope now. John says we can know something about the future, and what we know is that we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And when John talks about being made like him, that phrase there, he doesn't have in mind that we become sort of divinized beings. Some religions teach that. It's not that we become divine beings. We don't deify ourselves. But rather what he has in mind is that you and I as believers in Christ are going to receive resurrected bodies as well as complete moral perfection when Christ returns. Even as Christ himself has a glorified body and there is no sin in him, which we see in chapter 3 verse 4. See, all the aches and pains of this present decaying body will be gone. The groanings in the valley of the shadow of death, they're going to be no more. The sinful desires of your flesh, the things that pull you to do that which is unpleasing to God, they're going to be eradicated completely. No more of the desire itself. Perfect bodies as well as perfect hearts, so that you're going to live as you were created to live. And thus, you're going to be forever glad and happy. When you're living the way that you're supposed to be, that you were created to live, that is, worshiping God, this produces actual maximal happiness in you. Oh, everybody wants to be fulfilled and happy, don't they? Oh, there's so much about that in life. I want to be fulfilled. I want to be happy. And John says, believer, do you want happiness? Then abide in Christ because on the day of his return... There's going to be no more sorrow, no more death, no more sin. You're going to live as you were created to live, and you're going to see the one who gave his life for you. See, Paul says similarly to the Philippians, Philippians 3, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We have lowly bodies now, don't we? We feel that every day. We feel that, the lowliness of our bodies. Paul says that our outer self is just wasting away. And we all know the groaning pains of life in a fallen world, some of us more than others, but we all know it. We all know what it is to be hurt by the sting of death in this life. We know what it is to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And so John points us to this family hope. And God is really thus saying to our hearts, to our despairing souls, and our decaying bodies, this isn't it. This isn't it. Your future is glorious. The evil of this sin-cursed world is not going to last forever forever. It's not gonna drag you down. You will see Christ when he returns and you will be made like him, new bodies, new hearts, and thus true fulfillment and happiness. Friends, don't let the outrageousness of these promises lead you to doubt the reality of them. I think it's so often that we approach these promises like this the way we kind of view maybe the latest superhero film. We look at it and we think, that would be awesome. It would be awesome to have all that, all those powers. And John saying, this is real. You know this. It's coming. It's not just a figment of our imaginations. It's actually something to cling to. We would do well to heed the words of the author of Hebrews Who says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let's hold fast to the confession of our hope. Friends, this this precious assurance of future glory has greatly comforted me and and really our family in in the last number of weeks. A few weeks ago, my aunt, who some of you would know, was diagnosed with an incurable form of cancer. She's 57. Lots of life that we think before her, and there are lots of questions. Why? Why now? Why her? So I speak here from experience as meditating on these passages that knowing this does actually change life now. Now. There's a sense in which we can be glad now even though complete gladness and joy are yet future. Oh, friends, we need to remind ourselves of just the basics of the faith, don't we? That we have a future hope, resurrection bodies, and the presence of our Savior, Jesus Christ, for all eternity. That's the future that you have if you were a child of God. You can bank on it. So we have the family future, but then secondly, John also makes clear to us that being a child of God doesn't merely mean just hope for the future. He points us secondly to the family traits and says that every child of God is marked by radical transformation in the present age, right now as you live in this life. See, apparently the Christians to whom John wrote needed to be reminded a little bit about not only their future hope, but about what they are to do in this life. They need to be admonished and warned and instructed. This is why John speaks as he does in verse 7. Look with me. He says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. You see, these Christians, they were at risk of being deceived by these false teachers who were coming along and saying, it doesn't matter how you live now. All that matters is that you're going to heaven when you die. So what you do in this life, in this body, doesn't matter. And John's saying, don't be deceived. That's false. That's a lie. That's something the devil wants you to believe. You see, these Christians, they were at risk of being deceived by what we can kind of call an easy believism. That is, you just pray a prayer, go on doing whatever you want, as long as you get to heaven in the end. They were being taught that repentance, that is turning away from our sin and following Christ, and holiness are not essential family traits and thus necessary for confidence on the day of Christ's return. Friends, it's true. We need to pursue holiness now, to pursue repentance now, if we want confidence on the day of judgment. And with even a cursory glance at the text, we see that John just repeatedly emphasizes that the believer's practice, that is your, your behavior, your, the way of your living, your lifestyle patterns, confirm your position as either children of God or children of the devil. And John highlights for us at least four distinctive family traits that increasingly mark every child of God in this present age. Not perfectly, but to some degree or another, and in increasing fashion, It marks everyone who is a child of God. There's four things. He says they abide in Christ. They turn from practicing sin to practicing righteousness. They are strangers to the world. And they pursue Christ-like purity. Let's look at each of these quick in turn. So the first family trait is that children of God abide in Christ. We saw that back in verse 28. And in verse 6, he uses that same word, abide again. He says, to abide in Christ is really a short way of commanding us, you as a believer, to persevere in trusting Christ and obeying his commandments. Both, trusting and obeying. And I actually get this elaborated definition of abide from the Apostle John himself. Look what he writes in chapter 324, just a few verses later. He says, whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given to us. So keeping his commandments in the power of the Holy Spirit is what it means to abide in God. And then if we go to the Gospel of John, we see that abiding is actually connected with a kind of persevering faith, a persevering reliance on Christ for salvation, In John 6, 56, Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And so I believe that John intends to use this symbolical language to communicate that you and I, as believers, must continue relying on Christ, on the body and the blood of Christ for our salvation. It's not just a one-time event of I just trust in Christ and then I go and do whatever I want. No, it's a continual coming to Christ and holding fast to Him. See, friends, if you don't believe in Christ alone for salvation, or if you profess to believe and then you just walk away at some future point and say, I have no need of Him, you're not abiding. Abiding is to keep Trusting in Christ and obeying him. So if you're not obeying and trusting, you prove yourself that really you're not part of God's family. And thus you don't have the hope of the promises for the future. See, all children of God abide in Christ. So the question then is, are you abiding? Are you clinging to Christ? And are you obeying his commandments? Not perfectly Not every single moment of the day, but as the general trajectory of your life, is that what dominates you? If it is, then this is just another confirmation that you are God's child. And then John follows this command of abiding with what else we know to be true of everyone who is born of God. He says in verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So here we have a second family trait, and it's this. All children of God turn from practicing sin to practicing righteousness. Everyone who is born of God makes a distinctive change in how they live. And he reiterates this point throughout verses 4 to 10, over and over and over. And you'll notice in the text that John contrasts the practices of the children of God, on the one hand, with the children of the devil. Couldn't be any more stark contrast than that, right? And he says in verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. That is, you're part of the devil's family. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. See, children of the devil have this attitude towards their sin where they just don't care. They continually and unrepentantly rebel against God. That is, sin is lawlessness. It's rebellion against God's rightful rulership. Even as their spiritual father, the devil, is marked by just a continual life of rebellion against God. Lawlessness. And in stark contrast to the children of the devil, those who love sin and just who could care less about what they do with it, John points us to those who truly know God, who have seen God. And he says in verse 10, By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. This is how you know. This is how you know which family you're a part of. Who's your daddy? This is how you know whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. At this point, he just repeats over and over and over because he wants to reinforce the core gospel truth that every child of God bears a resemblance to their spiritual father, to their heavenly father in the way that they relate to their sin. No longer do they just give in to it without repentance, but they hate their sin and they strive to turn against it and to forsake it and rather they live, they strive to live in accordance with the commandments of God that is revealed to us in the written word of God. See, it's incompatible for you as a believer. If you're a believer, it's incompatible for you to keep on sinning without repentance. It's like trying to cage up a grizzly bear and a lamb. The two don't go together. If that happens, there's going to be destruction and chaos. And so it is with those who are children of God. They cannot continue sinning without ever fighting their sin and turning towards walking in obedience. Now, we got to be careful here because some have actually taken these words... And they're pretty straightforward and John's a straight shooter. But some have misconstrued what John's saying here. And they they come to it and they say, well, when he says that believer cannot sin, well, that must mean that believers then can live some sort of sinless lives right now in the present. But we know that this isn't what John is saying. Because if you look back earlier in the text, specifically in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, if we say we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then in, two, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says something similar. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So he's speaking there. Oh, sorry, rather, the, the end of verse 1. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In other words, John expects that believers, you and I, are going to sin in this present life. We don't get final Glorification until the return of Christ. Can we see him? Therefore, I think what John's saying in verses four to 10 is that if you're truly born again, if you're a Christian, you don't go on the rest of your believing life with the same kind of cavalier and apathetic attitude towards your sin that you had before you were made part of his family. He's talking here about a necessary change in the general pattern, the general trajectory of your life. True children of God don't go on making a practice of lawless rebellion because that proves you to be a child of the devil. Rather, they delight in the commandments of God. They seek His will and they do everything in the power of the Holy Spirit to obey Him. So then, who's your spiritual father? Who's your spiritual daddy, so to speak? Which family do you belong to? Well, Ask yourself, what's my attitude towards my sin? Do I hate it? Do I strive against it? Oh, I'm not not talking about perfection. I'm talking about what's your general attitude. Look at the overall picture of your life. Not just the hour by hour and day by day necessarily, but the overall picture of your life. Which way is it heading? Towards godliness? Or is it just stayed the same as you were before? What sins do you need to forsake today? What commandments of God as the child of God do you need to start obeying today? And third, we see a third family trait. Helps identify the true children of God and confirms our standing. And he says that all children of God are marked by a distinctive strangeness to the world. Look at chapter three, verse one again. He says, see what kind of love the father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. There's a distinctive kind of strangeness about you if you are a child of God. The, world, the way the world reacts to how you're living is actually a good litmus test for you to determine whether or not you're actually a child of God. If you're unbelieving coworkers or relatives or neighbors, never think that you are a little bit odd, a little bit off your rocker. Then it probably means you're not forsaking sin and practicing righteousness. And which might tell you which spiritual family you're a part of. Are you distinct from the world? Does your faith make you a little bit odd in the sight of others because you know God as your father and they don't? If you are, again, this is confirmation for you. This is confirmation that you are God's child and thus have hope for the future. And then a final trait he points us to, look back at verse 3, where he says, everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And the trait is this, that every child of God pursues Christ-like purity. If you have the hope of final glorification, then it follows that you must actively pursue present purification, imitating Christ's own perfect moral purity. And we see clearly in this text that our growth is not just automatic. And there's a lot of people out there who think, just, "I just let go. The Holy Spirit does it all. I don't do a thing." John's saying, "No. you're actually called to purify yourself, yes, in the power of the Holy Spirit. But there's an active purification. We don't drift into purity. We are called to purify ourselves. So this looks like the teenage guy struggling with pornography who actively seeks out friends to help him in the fight. It means he puts up appropriate guards to keep him from sinning at the moment of temptation. Instead of going on the internet late at night, he takes decisive action away from that. Maybe he reads his Bible instead or he goes and meets with friends or he just turns his electronics off. Whatever the case is, there's an act of purification. And pursuing Christ-like purity might look like you not laughing at the raunchy jokes in the dressing room or around the water cooler at work. It means you don't celebrate sin in the way the world around us calls us to celebrate it. Man, we see that so much nowadays. Come, celebrate! And if you don't celebrate get lost. Friends, there's a a price to pay for purifying yourself even as Christ is pure. And it affects our tongues. It means that husbands, you don't speak about your wife or to your wife in a dishonoring, derogatory way. In the same way that we hear so much from our culture. It means wives, you honor your husbands in the way you, you speak to them. Purity affects our whole beings and there's an active movement towards Christ's likeness that we are called to pursue. Rather than pursuing materialism, we pursue Christ's kingdom. There's so many things that we can lump into the purifying work that we are called to. But I can guarantee that if you're marked by these kinds of things, these kinds of activities, man, you're gonna appear strange. You're gonna appear like a stranger in the world. And prove to yourself once again, man, I'm a child of God. So do these traits mark you in an increasing manner? Not perfectly, but increasingly, do they mark you? If they do, rejoice because it's evidence that you're a child of God. But if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, man, really, I have no, I could care less about my sin the law of God really doesn't seem like a delight to me. Purifying myself is the last thing on my mind. Then it's time for you to consider which side you're on, which family you're a part of. And maybe it's time for you to actually tremble in fear. Because maybe these things are saying, alerting you to the fact that, man, I'm I'm not a child of God. I'm actually a child of the devil. And thus there's no hope for me. Friends, we've been talking a lot about our actions, our practices, our lifestyles, but I want us to conclude and look this morning and see clearly from the text that John is not saying that your salvation is in any way grounded upon your works of righteousness or purity. There is only one righteous man, only one, who's ever lived. He's the only one to walk the globe and it would be blasphemous and actually lead to our condemnation to think and to believe that we can just work our way into the family of God by our own goodness. So John explicitly points us finally to the family savior. And he says that the love of God through the cross of Christ is the sole basis for all present and future transformation in every one of God's children. Look with me at verse 1, where John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. You see that God called us, the, word, the verbs are very passive. It's not that we called upon God and, and were the initiators. No, God was the one who called us and brought us into his family when we were yet far off, when we were children of the devil. We don't make ourselves born again. God gives us the new birth. And then look closely at what John says in verse 5. You know that He, that is Christ, appeared in order to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. And then look a little further with me at verses 8 and 9. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. See, the purpose, John says, for Christ's first coming was primarily to take away sins. He is the perfectly pure, the sinless Lamb of God, the wrath appeasing, sin canceling, Satan destroying sacrifice. And by his blood, he takes away both the penalty of our sins, which is the wrath of God, as well as the power of sin. He destroys the enslaving, deceiving, slanderous work of the devil. He destroys death so that there is no longer a sting. And the devil can no longer accuse those who are children of God that they are guilty because Christ has taken the curse on our behalf. And if you think that God could be any more gracious, he not only takes away the penalty of sin, but he implants something within us. Do you see that in the text? It says he implants his seed. And scholars debate what that really means, but it's something from God. It's perhaps the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, something of his divine nature, like Peter says, that is given to everyone who is a child of God. It's implanted in our hearts so that we have a kind of new spiritual genetics that changes the way we live, that produces godliness. The reason, friends, hear me very clearly, the reason why future glory as well as present transformation are guaranteed to mark every single child of God is because it was precisely the design of the cross to do so. That's why Christ came, for this reason. Therefore, To say, like so many do, that you can be a child of God and just go on living your life without a care in the world about the things of God is to actually say that Christ, that actually the triune God in his wise plan failed in what he came to accomplish. That seems nearly blasphemous to me. Because God intends to take away your sins, and destroy the works of the devil through the atonement of Christ, and because he graciously gives you his seed, enabling you to obey, to fight sin, it's inevitable that you, as a Christian, are gonna begin an active resistance movement against the old lawless order of rebellion, and you're gonna pursue righteousness and purity instead. You see, the cross of Christ doesn't just guarantee that you go to heaven. It doesn't just bring you into the family of God, but it also guarantees that while you're on your way to glory, you're going to obey Christ. I just want to give a, a final few points of application briefly here as we close this morning. And the first stems from this previous point. And it's this do not boast every bit of your righteousness, every time you actively seek to purify yourself as Christ is pure, every time you strive to put off sin and to fight against sin and to repent and to confess it to God, every one of those actions that you do are produced in you only because of Christ, because he shed his blood in order to take away both the penalty and the power of sin. God is the one who graciously puts his seed in you and calls you to be his children. So there's no place for boasting. Everything that you are and everything that you do is because of the work of God in your life. But then the second application is this. Pay close attention to John's command in verse 7. Dear children... Do not be deceived. Don't be sucked into the lie of those who come along and trumpet a kind of easy believism a kind of Christianity that says, well, you can be born again and, give, and not give two hoots about the things of God. And if you ever come along and call into question the legitimacy of someone's eternal destiny, because their lives are not aligning with what John says is true of the children of God, Oh, you're going to undoubtedly encounter opposition, even in the evangelical church. People are going to retort and say, no, 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 no. Once saved, always saved. Hold to the gospel of the Bible, not cultural Christianity. Which then leads to a third application for us, and it's this. Warn those who are deceived, but on the other hand, encourage those who are growing. When you see someone who professes to be a believer, but they're living like the devil, maybe they just don't show any interest in the things of God. Maybe they're not pursuing the things of his word. Then warn them that if they continue living that way, they're proving themselves to be actually in alignment with the devil, not God. And as such, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God and if you think that's too harsh or ungracious or judgmental, well, then you, have to, then you have to argue with Jesus. Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... The church is called to this action of warning others, and we've, we've let that slide. We're all about encouragement, but we forgot that the ministry of warning is actually a gift of God to the church. It's one of the things that keeps people from wandering all the way to their eternal destruction. And if you think that that's unloving, to warn, to warn someone who's living like the devil then that would be like me saying it's unloving for me to go up to my daughter and say to her when she's about to do something dangerous, don't do that! It's not unloving for you to warn people who are wandering. Exhort them to abide in Christ so that they will have confidence before Him on the day of judgment. But then on the other hand, don't forget the ministry of encouragement. When you see Brothers and sisters who are growing, who are evidencing these family traits, encourage them, say, keep going. I see that as a mark of God's grace in your life. And this is one of the ways in which the Holy Spirit gives life to those who are maybe doubting their salvation, who are weak and feeble, who are coming up against the sins of the flesh over and over. And it's actually life-giving. And then finally, the final exhortation is this you would do your soul much good by beholding, by gazing at God's great love shown to to you through his son, Jesus Christ. This is actually a command in verse one. See, behold, look, gaze, what kind of love the Father has given to us. And that word, the what what kind there, when he says it's actually focusing on this kind of otherworldly love. It's so out of this world, it's hard to believe and as you struggle with sin there's going to be seasons marked by defeat and discouragement even as believers. And John knows this but he says set your eyes on the love of God. How out of this world his love is for you in calling you to be his children who were once children of the devil shaking your fist at God. He calls you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So open your Bibles Open your Bibles and gaze with wonder on how great God's love is towards you who were once children of the devil. And friends, that's that's really why, one of the reasons why we do communion. That's one of the reasons why we do communion because in it we are called to reflect and to remember the love of God through Christ Jesus. We behold the love of God as we take the elements together and we encourage our hearts that just as real as the bread is and just as real as the drink that goes down your throat, so too the love of God is actually real. Your future hope is actually real. The transformation that God brings about in your life is actually real. The Savior who gave his life for you is actually real. So to that end, I invite those who will be serving communion to come up. And I'll just close in prayer as they do. Father, thank you for your word, which brings light to darkness. I pray that it would have its good effect in our lives, that it would produce much fruit and that it would find much good soil bearing fruit to your glory. Help us, Father, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.